0: Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group from the ISMG Fraud Summit. I'm happy to welcome Claudel Cherie. He's a postal inspector at the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and he made a presentation here at the summit. Welcome, Claudel. Thank you. One of the things you discussed in your presentation was synthetic identity. That's correct. What is synthetic identity? Synthetic identity essentially is a identity of an individual that's created using various different, and in an industry standard, we'll say PII. PII is basically personally identifying information. It's not a traditional John Doe 123 social security number living at 2345 Main Street, where it's a true person that lives at that address and it's a true person with a actual social, social security number and date of birth and other PII. This is where the suspect or the bad guy for this particular case will take that information, part of the information from John Doe, part of the information from himself, and part of the information from another victim, pull it into a melting pot, so to speak, and then try to make up a hotspot of a new person. That really does not really exist except in the virtual world. So essentially, he'll take this address from this in- this victim, this data birth from this victim, maybe or his own data birth, so he or she actually remembers it, and half of the social security number from this victim, a portion from himself, and a portion from another victim, or any type of variation of that kind of structure, and he'll create a synthetic identity that can be used to apply for different credit cards, different bank accounts, and things of that nature. This has been around for quite a while. It has been on a a while. I I can't even go back to how far it goes goes back to. It it goes back to back in the days where someone would apply for a credit card account, and they had bad credit, so they would probably change their social security number so that they would actually get approved. It's gone to the way where someone would actually just change it to legitimately get a card so that they would use and legitimately pay off on their own to where someone is like, they will do this to illegitimately get a card, or legitimately, however you want to look at it, with no intention of paying it off. The express purpose is to use it for illicit games. where before someone might've done it because they had bad credit and they couldn't get a credit card and they really needed one. They wanted to continue using credit, but they made mistakes in the past. So they might've doctored or fudged their numbers a little bit to try to get that approval process done. Fast forward 10, 15, 20 years later, it's more for illicit game, where the intention is specifically to establish a pool of accounts that can be used to create a, a greater or systematic fraud. Who are the general victims of this kind of fraud? Unfortunately for these type of frauds, the victims tend to be the financial institutions. Don't get me wrong on this. There can be individual victims where the social security number can be linked back to a true person. And the reason why I say that is because when an account goes bad and an institution charges it off at bad, as bad debt, it will typically be sold to a collection agency. Now, there are various different collection agencies, some more aggressive than others, and they will go through whatever measures they can to collect on that account because it's a business. And in doing that, if the social security number comes back to John Doe, as a true person and it's being used as Mary Jane as a fake person, you know, they may not only try their collection efforts against Mary Jane, who doesn't exist, but they will also try to get their collection efforts on John Doe because John Doe has a real digital footprint where Mary Jane does not. It can come back to a victim, but more often than not, it doesn't. The ball ends up being on the bank's court where they'll take the loss because there is no true victim and it gets written off as bad debt. Can you give an example of a recent investigation you were involved in and how how that was that resolved? Yeah, there's still two open investigations that I can cite. There was one particular investigation that us postal inspectors had where the fraud And by fraud, I mean the exposure to the bank was over $60 million. And in this particular case, the individual opened over 200 different credit cards over various different institutions. Once he had those credit cards opened, he would use them in a traditional sense to make illicit credit card charges for services, goods, things of that nature. Now, the thing behind these credit cards is that they were all created with synthetic identities. And he would use various different names, various different social security numbers, deviations, variations of, and different addresses across various different localities in the tri-state New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania area. and once he had these accounts opened, he would use a pool of accounts that he opened, let's say, six months ago to pay off the accounts he just opened today. And the accounts that he opened today, he'd hold on to them. A year later, he'd open another group of accounts in Pool C, and then he would use some of Pool A, some of Pool B to pay Pool C, and vice versa, create counterfeit checks to pay them off. He would make overpayments in those in those accounts, and, and essentially by making overpayments, in this particular example, I'll say, if the balance was about $500, he'd send in a check for $1,000. He gets a $500 refund check. He'd call in and say, you know, I made an overpayment. Can I get a refund? he gets issued a a $500 refund check. Now, by the time the credit card company realizes that the payment he originally made comes back bad, he's already gotten not only the charges he made on the card and new charges he made after the payment posted, he also got a $500 refund. I'm a little surprised that technology doesn't pick that up almost instantly. Why not? You know, financial institutions are kind of like, I guess it's kind of like a, a, a double-edged sword. The surefire way to eliminate fraud is not to have the credit card accounts at all. It's a balance between what the customers want versus protecting the customer or the institution itself from fraud. If an institution implemented every possible measure to prevent fraud from happening, and I mean every possible measure, they would not have a customer. <laughs> that's unfortunately, it's kind of, that's, that's, the, that's the fact of the matter. So it's a, it's a balance. And unfortunately, in that balance, as that balance shifts to higher security measures and a less pleasing customer experience or until that customer experience becomes normalized where they expect this type of level of security for their accounts, it's a balance. And as that balance shifts up and down between higher security, less security, better customer experience, there's always a, a, a little loophole or a little crack where fraudsters or suspects will exploit for their own illicit gain. Are the fraudsters staying ahead of the game? Uh, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> if you're asking us, no, we're catching them as fast as we can find them. And if you ask the financial institutions, they're identifying them as fast as they come across them. So it all depends on, on who you ask. But I think in this digital age, it's not necessarily that they're staying ahead of the game. It's just that it's a lot easier for, for them to do it than it was 10 or 15 years ago. The no, Foster, you were just discussing, how'd you catch him? He came on our radar probably several times, as far as, when I say I, I mean law enforcement. But in that particular case, it was maybe one account, two accounts. It was never the whole pool of accounts. Where he came to the attention of postal inspectors, a large investigation ensued. The, the banks kind of already realized that they were taking losses, and postal inspectors did a lot of legwork, data mining, surveillance, you know, the, the traditional law enforcement steps. He'd be sending out these payments, and they we'd intercept the payments from the collection boxes and the mailboxes, send them to our forensic lab for DNA analysis and fingerprints. It was the good old-fashioned gumshoe work that led us to identifying him and culminate these large pool of accounts by not only working the investigation with the financial institution that referred it to us, but also looking for other financial institutions that may have been a victim of his his illicit scheme. Has this case going to trial yet? No, it has not. Thank you. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Claudel Cherie, Postal Inspector, U.S. Postal Inspection Service for Information Security Media Group. I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.